Thank you for joining us on the Underdog Podcast, the place where we believe at one point in your life, you were an underdog and overcame adversity. And for that reason, we want to hear your story. I am your boy, Calvin Blackman. And I am Kyle Decker. This episode is powered by BetterHelp. Here at the Underdog, we know life can be difficult, and sometimes you need to talk to someone. That's why we have partnered with BetterHelp, the leader in online therapy. Underdog listeners can save 10% on their first month. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash underdog. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com forward slash underdog to get your discount today. When he was eight years old, Merrill Hodge had big dreams. Being from a small town in Idaho, he had to find a way. And that's exactly what he's done. Quote, Merrill has overcome career-ending head trauma, depression, cancer, open-heart surgery, and used those experiences to help others facing similar challenges through inspirational speaking and various business ventures. But none of these things are more important than the thing he cherishes most in life, it's being a dad. Welcome to the UDP, Merrill. Good to be with you boys, man. (laughs) Yeah, great to have you. So I just want to start it off. Thank you again for your time. Um, find a way, right? So you've written two, you've written two books, um, and live by that motto. Can you kind of speak upon where that originated? Well, you know, it, it actually happened when I was 12 years old. Um, and it was, I think the first moment of truth I had in my life where, um, I'd been walking around for years, um, telling people I was going to play, I was going to play in the NFL. You know, people ask, I always tell people like, I guarantee this happened to anybody, everybody who was a kid. If you got kids, you'd do it to them. At some point, you get asked, what do you want to do? What do you want to be? And I remember being asked that the first time. And I was a kid, and I was like, oh, I have no idea. Not that you're supposed to know, you know, at like age eight or nine. But I was like, I have no idea. Well, I had uh, – a few years later, I walked in and saw – I saw uh, the Green Bay Packers were playing. I can't remember who they were playing, but they are playing. They were on TV. And I saw it at my grandparents' house, and I was like, holy cow. Like, I'm doing that, and I've been doing that in the backyard. I had no idea you could do it on television. So, I obviously, I discovered the NFL. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do, and that's what I'm going to be. And so, I was, I was excited that I had something to give to somebody when they asked me. And I remember the first time I got asked, I was so excited. to say, I'm going to play in the National Football League. And this this – the, the, the one of four things was said to me every time I was asked that they would say, Oh my gosh, you know how hard that is. Oh my gosh. Do you know what the odds are? You play, are you playing the NFL or, Oh son, don't put all your eggs in one basket. You, I wouldn't want you to be disappointed one day or it was impossible. Now that's a critical, those experiences were critical for me as a young kid, because I probably see things through a child's eyes more than most adults because of the things that I experienced as a kid. So in those moments right there, the people who were supposed to encourage me were the first ones to discourage me. But then it also speaks to, um, so as I got older, I've always looked at that when a kid says something or, um, um, has a passion or a dream, I can see me doing that. And then what is my responsibility as an adult? You know, is it to squash it or is it to help it? Um, but from my perspective, too, as kids are resilient, like it really never phased me. Like I never got discouraged by that. I just I kept on on my path. And 
I now was finally getting my own bedroom. So I asked if my dad make me a wall of cork. And he asked me why. And I was like, I really wanted to put my goals up. And I was I had junior high, high school and college to attend. But long story short, I had written down all of these goals. And at the top, though, sat I will play in the NFL. My favorite player is Walter Payton. My favorite team was the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I cut a symbol of the National Football League out. And so I, I, I kind of decorated the picture or the goal with pictures. And it was the day I pinned it up on my wall that I was looking at it. And it's the first time that I started to revisit everything that was said to me. And I remember the more I let myself get consumed in how hard it was with the odds. I don't know what the odds were at that time, but 0.02% of high school kids ever playing the National Football League. Obviously, there's some validity that the odds are against you. I'm a Pocatello Idol, so I don't even know what that <laughs> odds um, But the more I let myself get consumed in that thought process, I'm telling you, I, uh, what's always exciting about being able to share it is that I can go back to that moment in time and I can feel just an absolute emptiness when I looked at I will play in the NFL because all of those thoughts were consuming me. And it was right in that moment of time that the words pop, find a way popped into my head. And I am telling you, as I say it right now, I'm looking at my hat that has find a way. I'm looking over my boards. I'm in my office and it has find a way every day on it. And it, man, it gave me a sense of energy and it inspired the one thing that is critical, no matter what your circumstance is. And I don't care if you created it or it was created for you. You had no way of dealing with how the circumstance uh, came about, like cancer, for example. You must take action. You got to do something about your circumstances. Sitting and dwelling in them and thinking about how hard it is and looking at the obstacles, you will go nowhere. And I was like, it inspired me to such a degree. Actually, I moved all my goals down because I created this pyramid, too. So that took some time. I put it all down. And actually, at the top of that wall for about a decade, those words sat there. And I'm going to tell you this. Every day I walked in the room, I mean, there was those days, as you know, every every human being has them. Um, I have them and still have them where, man, it just wasn't your day. And it's discouraging and it's frustrating. And I'd look back up at that wall and I wouldn't actually see the goal of what I was trying to do or goals. I'd see the words find a way. And it just it generated an energy in me and inspired me to take action and that's where it sent me on a journey. And those those words still to this day, I just have a better tool belt to put into place when things come my way that are an adverse situation or I'm striving for something. Um, I just can apply them quicker and easier than I that I could at age 12. But that's where it all started. And um, they ended up helping me live a dream, but then they end up helping me fight to live too. Absolutely. <clears throat> We're going to go through that journey. And just to kind of bring everyone uh, up to speed as well, he's from Idaho, as you mentioned, went to Idaho State. And like you said, I don't know, I didn't do my facts on this, but how many people from the state of Idaho have even made the NFL? I don't even know. Right. Well, I'm going to tell you this. Um, I think I can, um, Jerry Kramer, actually he played for the Green Bay Packers. I, now, I think I think he's from Ketchum, Idaho. Don't, don't, okay. I'm pretty sure he's from Ketchum, Idaho. Um, and actually this kid is a local kid. I mean, a, a, a current, um, and he could be, a, end up being a big star for the NFL. Taysom Hill, oh, Taysom, yeah. Hill and I yep. same, Taysom Hill and I went to the same high school. Um, he and I, he and my son played at BYU together. 
Um, my, my son was a quarterback and, um, and my brother had coached Taysom Hill. So um, I, I think about three or four that were actually from Pocatello, you know, now playing at Idaho state, I mean, doesn't mean you're from Idaho. So um, I think I can only think of three that are actually from the state. We're born in the state and played in the state. That's why I go back to the odds, the odds part from Idaho. Not, <laughs> right. Probably different, even not, less than 0.02%. It's yeah. not the Mecca. <laughs> and to go off yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. I will I will give you that. It is not the Mecca for, for football. It's the Mecca for other things, but not right. that. Right. So just to go off of that, like as Merrill is saying, I think your journey, like you said, point two percent even go from college to the NFL. And so to go from Idaho um to like you said, adverse conditions as you were a kid, creating the corkboard, you visualized obviously playing for the Steelers, playing in the NFL. Hopefully I believe meeting Walter Payton, who was a role model or someone you aspired yeah. to be then losing your mother right at age 19, the early age of 19. Is that right? Yeah. I lost my mom. And I, if you back up further, it actually, um, I almost lost my hand in a farming accident when I was, um, um, gosh dang, I think I was probably, probably about 13. I think I might have been 14. It's probably age 14. I almost lost my hand in a, in a farming accident. And, you know, that was another moment in my life where, um, how he saved my hand actually still a medical marvel you know, to this day, medically speaking, just because all the stitches to put my hand back together and sew my uh, fingers back together. I lost a little bit of my little finger, but I couldn't use that hand for almost two years. I mean, it took me a long time to rehab. And in that whole process, I'm like, I'm now I'm thinking, okay, nobody I've ever seen in the NFL is playing with just one hand that's an offensive guy that has to catch the ball, you know, that then I started thinking, Oh my gosh, I don't know what those odds are. But, you know, that was, that was another moment in my life where you just, you know, having actually something that inspired me and that I was passionate about helped me with my rehab process on my hand. I eventually got my hand back to where, uh, it would be considered normal today. If you think, I wish I had a picture back then, back then, you know, I don't even, I don't even know if cameras were around back then, but um, <laughs> I wish I'd had a picture of it just to, to be able to reflect back on it, you know, and show people what it looked like. It was a disaster and how he, how he put that back together. I'm so grateful for. Yeah, no. And then <clears throat> go to Idaho state and then you get drafted 10th round in 87 by the Steelers. So you grew up wanting to play for the Steelers and then you get drafted. Uh, tell us a little bit about that moment of when you got drafted and got to go play for the team you really wanted to always play for. Well, you know, I went to the combine and I always tell the story that after the combine, everybody aside from this year, all the teams kind of go back out and they circle back with um, players that, that they liked or want to look at and get a good evaluation on for drafting. And uh, the Green Bay Packers came, the Raiders came, the Washington Redskins came, the Denver Broncos came, and all of them reworked me out. And what they do, um, and what usually happens, so people understand, is a team will call, get get in contact with your agent, um, set up a time and a date, they show up, and they really run you through a mini combine again. Okay, all those teams did that. I remember the Steelers called, and the time I was supposed to meet him up there, I got up there. I went to the office and they said, oh, he's been, the scout was back watching tape, which they usually were. And I went back and I introduced myself and he goes, hey, you play basketball? 
And I was like, I was thinking in my, is this a trick question? Because <laughs> I was like, are we, is anyone, why would you ask? Anyway, I go, I go, yeah. I go, actually, I was, that's probably my best sport actually in high school. And he said, well, we got a great basketball team in Pittsburgh in the offseason. You can make a lot of money playing basketball. So um, that's good to know. And he's watching tape. And I said, well, do you want me to go get changed and work out? He's like, oh, no. He goes, I know what. He goes, I got everything I need here. Just wanted to meet you. Say hi to you. Pleasant guy, right? Um, we talked a little further, and I left. And I remember thinking, okay, of all the teams that are going to draft me, I know the one team that has no interest in me, and that is the Pittsburgh Steelers. They're more interested in my basketball than my football, right? So I wrote Pittsburgh off. I was like, oh, that ain't, that ain't happening. That is – the Steelers have no interest in me because they're the only ones that didn't rework me out. So come draft day back then, um, well, it's kind of like that now, but not um, as far as days go, but surely not the, not the, uh, not the, the show they put on now. It, it was three days and I was expected, I was projected to go on around the third round to the Raiders. So I missed the first day, the second day, and I don't think I'm going to get drafted. Well, on the third day, it was actually that scout who called me. The phone rang, and actually, I was so far out of it by then. I didn't even the phone ring and didn't even even concern me at all, thinking it was a team calling me. And it ended up being him. And I remember what he said to me. He's like, "Hey, listen." He goes, "You want to be a Pittsburgh Steeler?" And I said, "Absolutely." He goes, "You can make this team. We need somebody like you." And I was like, "He goes, we'll put you over with you know, the, everybody who had to get travel read up." He goes, "We'll look forward to seeing you." And I was like, "Oh my gosh." Like, I got my chance. You know, that's all you could really ask for, you know, is a chance and to get drafted by them um, and it being my favorite team as a kid. Um, and this is how green I was or ignorant. I, uh, I'm i a Pocatello Idaho. Now, this is not like – you almost have to go back in time with people when they – because I tell stories and some kids look at me like, well, why don't you just Google that? Or why don't you just look on the <laughs> Then you have to explain, okay, well, listen, the only thing I had that resembled the map of the world was I, most people, when you're kids my age, had that global map that um, was a ball that circled around and somebody would have it on their desk or, you know, in the family room or somewhere. Yeah, you spin it around and I, see where your finger lands yeah. and that's where you're going to live. Yeah, right? yeah. So that's where I went to find out where Pittsburgh was. I was like, I had no idea where Pittsburgh, and I saw it was next to New York. I was like, oh my gosh, I've never been. I've only flown on a plane one other time. I don't think I'd ever. I well, I played Southwest Louisiana as the first I ever went south or east, and uh, um, I was. I had no idea where Pittsburgh was, so I was like, it's the first time I, I had an idea where I was going to go. Well, I know uh, getting to speaking of Pittsburgh, I actually lived there growing up for about four or five years. I moved around as as a kid a lot, but um, Gibsonia, uh, Wexford area. And so I know how I actually grew up a Cleveland Browns fan as hard as it is to be. <laughs> I'll throw that out there, but living in Pittsburgh, one, I know that, uh, obviously you're a lot of people admired and appreciated your body of work there and everything you've done in the community, but, uh, two, just how big, obviously Pittsburgh Steeler football is. So, um, you know, to have that career. And one thing I found interesting, Merrill was, you explained um, a story about, you know, uh, an instance, I think it was a Friday walkthrough or maybe a Saturday of, you know, how you became, you wanted uh, Coach Noel, wanted you to become an uncommon player. Can you kind of go into that story? I think it's really, really um, well, attention to detail. Well, you know, um, I had, uh, um, 
I had a lot of experiences. Walter Payton um, has indirectly inspired me in my life. Um, I've had, I'm a, li- I am, I'm a product of so many people. Rather, rather they've inspired me or they've challenged me. And this one would be one of challenge, um, where it actually changed my career. It, it, it took me from being on a team to being a starter for nearly a decade in the NFL with just this challenge alone. So um, we're on a Friday practice. It's the first Friday practice I've ever been a part of in the NFL. And one thing is very clear that I had learned up to that point, even with through training camp, is like you just don't make mistakes and you don't make them on Fridays. You can make it on Wednesday, Thursday when you're putting some game plans in and you're working on some details. But Friday, everything's buttoned up. Your first 10 to 15 plays or the first 10 or 15 you're going to run in the game. So they clearly don't want any mistakes on a Friday because the next time you're executing them is going to be Sunday. So I get in the huddle and they call a pass play. And I was like, okay, check. I know what I was going to do. Snap count. You know, and then you start going, man, I hope he throws it to me. That's, that's how offensive players think. He's like, I hope the ball comes to me. They snap the ball. I run. I check the linebacker. He drops. I run a flat route, which I've done thousands of times. And he throws the ball to the other side of the field. And so as the wide receiver's running, after he caught it, the whistle blows right in the middle of the play. And I hear, Merrill, what are you doing? And I was like, oh. Now I was standing there really doing nothing. So when he asked me, I, my response was, well, nothing. He goes, that's the problem. He goes, I didn't keep you. Uh, I didn't keep you on this team. It was Chuck Noll, by the way. Sorry, it was Chuck Noll who asked me what I was doing, and when I told him nothing, um, he said, "Well, that's not why I kept you on this team." He said, "I can get anybody that we just cut to come back here and do what you just did." He said, "Actually, on Sunday, I'll do you one better. I'm gonna pull somebody out of the stands and do what you just did." I don't need you to be a common football player. I need you to be uncommon. You see your buddy over there running with the football? Go help him. Go help him. How do you know he doesn't get hit, fumbled, and you recover the football force? You cannot do that by standing there doing nothing. Let's say he breaks a tackle. You could make a key block. We're going to score a touchdown if you go help him. But you stand there doing nothing isn't going to get that done. And then he went to this dissertation about being common versus uncommon, that we're going to line up every Sunday and things are going to be pretty even in the NFL. You know, and it is true. There's very there's yes, there's there's some elite players, but every team's kind of the the same, the the, close to being the same. That's why a team can go 0 16 and win their last game. I mean, there is no easy while there's been teams that were 0 11. Maybe played the Patriots one year. And we, we beat them, but they were 0-11. And I'm like, that was the hardest win I've ever had on a team that's 0-11. I mean, so it, I, I understood later what he meant. But his challenge to be uncommon, if, you, if we'd have backed up before I left that huddle, if you'd have said, hey, Merrill, do you do everything you can on every play? I'd have said, yes, I do. Because I really believe that I was detailed. I worked hard. I played hard. Um, I had, I thought, the right mindset to do that. And in an instant, Chuck Noll widened my scope to things I could be doing more of. Now, I'm going to tell you this. That became a part of my makeup. My scope widened. I started to see more things I could be doing on every play and should be doing on every play. And that took me from being a on the team to a starter. 
that just that habit alone, how it changed, how I looked at my profession, how I looked at my craft and it changed me. And I now, um, I do a lot of inspirational speaking and that's one of the stories I share, but like we all can have a chance to, you know, we get tunnel vision, you get to do things a certain way. And sometimes it's good to be challenged. You know, um, sometimes people get angry at that and they're offended by it. Um, and sometimes it depends on how it's presented to, because that can all be a part of it. Um, but man, when you widen my scope to see that I've, I've learned to, um, to try to be diligent in that, in all of the things I do, you know, are you, is there more I could be doing? Do I need to widen my scope? Um, am I doing, um, is there other ways to do it that might be better? And it's, it's just really helped me. It's helped me not just at that moment in my life, but really my broadcasting career with ESPN, it was, pivotal in things that I done, how I speak still, you know, I'm always widening that scope and looking for better ways to do things, present things. And so people can be receptive to them. So um, it was a great lesson to learn and it changed my, changed my career and changed my life. And you talk, Merrill, a lot about habits. I think one thing I saw that really hit home with me is that you said, uh, we are repeatedly what we do. Excellence isn't an action, but a habit. I thought that was certain. You know, I stumbled across that actually. Um, I went looking for information on Walter Payton at a library. Here's the other story. Here's where I get like, yeah, I lose kids when I go to the library. They're like, why are you go to the library? <laughs> why <are> you <laughs> How dumb are you? I like, ah, you know, there's this thing that used to ring on the wall. I go, believe it or not. <laughs> well, you don't look like your, your age, man. You look like you're yeah, 30. I, so. I appreciate that. But I'm, I'm, telling, I'm talking to some kids. They look at me like, why would you waste all that time? <laughs> and then when I have to get the wall, I, when I thought that there's a phone that rang on the wall, they're like, what? <laughs> Yeah, forget it. Let's go on to something else. But I, I went looking for Walter Payton. And I remember asking the librarian about how to do that. And she encouraged me to go over to this really end up being like a machine computer like thing that had all of the categories I would need really all together versus wandering the library looking for. It. And I come across the guy. I have no idea who he is. I'd never heard of Aristotle in my life. And I'm going to be honest, with you, still this day, I have no idea why I even chose to read because I'm not really a reader either. Um, but I end up reading a lot of the things that he had written. And the more I read, the more interested I become. And I come across a quote and I'm telling you, it becomes the foundation of my journey. And it's actually what I needed at that time, to be honest with you. But the quote is, we are what we repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence is not an act, but a habit. And if you think about that, there's a lot of truth to it. Um, it resonated with me for these reasons. You are what you repeatedly do. Like everybody can reflect on what they do in a repeated fashion. Now that doesn't mean bad. That, I mean, it can be really good, but there's a lot of truth to that. So what I started thinking is, okay, when the things I must repeat, they better be good things. They better be habits that can help me because I don't have a lot of room for error. And um, I know that it's not going going to be easy. And then, you know, therefore, excellence is not an act, but a habit. And that moved me because I knew I needed to be excellent. So I thought, shoot, you develop the right habits. You do them repeatedly enough and they're constructively they're constructed enough in the right direction. You can be excellent. You know, nobody just stumbles out of bed and becomes excellent one day. But, man, you can work at it. And that that really transformed me. I was like, 
I needed that. I needed that, you know, almost like, like guidance, if you will, to help me formulate habits and give me perspective to work with. And I put that on my wall. That sit there for like 10 years. And that, so I, I've never forgot. Actually, I, I had that in my locker for a long period of time, but I've seen it so many times that I'll never forget it. Uh, no, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I have never seen or, or, you know, heard you or your inspirational speaking or whatnot, man. But, uh, you know, just listen to you talk. I kind of uh, told Kyle, I was like, I'm, I'm over here getting chills. Uh, you know, I feel like I'm listening to, you know, one of my former coaches talk and getting me, getting me excited for pregame or whatnot. So he's uh, jumping up and down. <laughs> <Merrill. You> got, <laughs> we're, we're, we're social well, distancing. Listen, I, would say this. Uh, listen I, I think we all, there, there's nobody immune to being in, inspired or, or motivated. I mean, we all, that's how I always tell people that life's, Football is the greatest team sport I've ever played, period. But life's the greatest team game. And, you know, individually we're strong, but collectively we're powerful. Well, the irony of what we're dealing with right now with this Corona-19 and all the things that are going on, it is the epitome of team game. Yeah. You know, with, you know, we, we all got to individually do our part. But, man, if we all do it collectively, that's going to be a powerful thing. You know, and if – Say the numbers are like what they're what they're saying, and we've you know it's it's flattened and it doesn't spike and explode, which is I know that's the biggest concern is that um, everybody getting affected at the same time, and then just overwhelming every aspect of the medical field. Um, kind of like what's happening in New York. Imagine if that happened across the country. You know that's so we're kind of seeing how important we are. You know we all are as teammates right now um in, in doing this and listen based on the numbers you know and hopefully they're accurate and hope they keep going that way then as a team we've done a pretty good job you know and i think that should rally anybody's morale should rally even as a doom and gloom as it feels and you're you're tired of the routine you're tired of not being able to do what you used to do um there's nobody's immune to that one you know everybody's dealing with those kinds of mirrors so i think while what i'm hoping and i've seen more of this than i can remember 9-11 might have might have brought this out in us where you just see the moral fiber and the, of of the human spirit, you know, and the people who want to do good and there's more good than bad. And, and you're seeing that. And I think I'm hoping that that'll be what we all, all, what we really see when it's all over. Yeah, we're going to have to uh, now that uh, we confirm that you live in our neck of the woods, we're going to take you to a steak dinner or something. We we'll put on Calvin's tab over there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> we'll, we'll enjoy. We'll get out of the house, and we're, we live local, so we can we can go uh, go to a good steak or something. I'm all in on that, brother. <laughs> um, so now we've talked, you know, about your career. Uh, you know, obviously getting drafted and whatnot, and then uh, I know we want to, as Kyle said early on, you know, you have had some adverse moments um, abruptly. You know, your football career, you know, kind of came to. Uh, and end, uh, you know, you had a concussion in 1994, uh, and, I, and I'm, from what I found, you know, you were cleared to play five days later, and then, um, you know, shortly thereafter, um, you had another concussion where you had to be resuscitated, and you ultimately had to learn to read again and had memory loss. Uh, can you talk a little bit about kind of where your career, you know, ended, and then, uh, you know, you it led you to obviously have to pursue, uh, you know, life from a different path? Yeah. Well, you know, I always talk uh, to people, you know, and um, hopefully everybody gets to live their passion, you know, which I did, you know, playing in the National Football League. And then sometimes a passion finds you and you don't even realize it. You don't understand the, the dynamics or the reasonings behind it. 
but this kind of found me. Um, I would embrace it later in life, and I didn't realize maybe the lessons I need to learn. But you know, if you back up and what happened to me in my career, this is one thing that's always misunderstood. My career career ended because of improper care of head trauma. Head trauma didn't really end my career because if I had had proper care um, and the treatments that exist today for athletes with uh, that have experienced head trauma, oh my gosh, I'm I'm probably playing in a month or two. But that being said, in 1994, here's what we knew. Here was the facts, and you have to stay. You have to stay in that perspective. I try to caution people. You know, you can't use. Uh, few, you know, where you are today and be angry because they didn't have that in 1994. Okay. That would be like the pilgrims being pissed off that there's not planes, trains, and automobiles when they cross the prairie. But right. They weren't a part. It was none of that was in, created. So <laughs> that would be a waste of time to be angry at something like that. But what happened to me is after a Monday night game, I sustained a, a severe head trauma. And here is the two greatest signs for severity. It is not losing consciousness. Losing consciousness is a sign, but that is not a sign of severity. It'd only be a sign of severity is if you never woke back up. Well, then the other two I'm about to tell you are irrelevant because if you can't keep somebody awake, you got a real problem. Um, I know of no experience where even though you lose consciousness for however minute, seconds, few seconds, um, every case I've ever known in a in sporting environment, they come out of that. So the two signs of greatest severity are cognitive recall and stability those two things and that's why a variety of tests have to be measured to make sure that you're properly recovered and you've stayed that way before you return to play that's why it takes a little while to get you to where you can return back to play but those are the two most important things my cognitive recall after my my, my monday night hit uh when Derek thomas and i collided was actually some 18 hours later. Okay, now, oftentimes, I might, you probably, everybody, I think most people saw uh, Mason Rudolph's concussion. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, how he lost consciousness and how it looked. It looked awful. Well, his cognitive recall, he was sharp as a tack within an hour. His balance, he never lost any any stability whatsoever. Um, once he got the sideline to the locker room, and everyone, okay, I know that because I know Mason, I know Dr. Moon, I know everybody who taught him. But, People who saw it, it was much, it appeared much more severe than really this the two signs that you have to look for because those and that's only a good part for him. But when people get misled by losing consciousness, meaning meaning there's your severity of it, and it really is not the case. So that's why players have to be monitored. Well, with you have a cognitive recall like I was having some 12 to 16, 18 hours later, that's severe. Even my stability wasn't very good when I got the train room the next day. Well, I got cleared over the phone five days later to return to play by a family practitioner. Okay, I didn't even get to see uh, a neuro guy. I didn't. I'd, I'd been do. I'd. I had a baseline for. Uh, I had a cognitive baseline. The Steelers had had all their players voluntarily do that started in 1991, and I'd done that for several years. But the Chicago Bears weren't doing that. So I didn't have access to that, and they didn't re reestablish it, or obviously things would have been a lot different. So then I returned to play, and I'm now in an environment. I remember in practice, I was all any type of new learning, you know, during a game plan of every Sunday, say 20 to 30% of your game plan could be new based on your opponent. 
And I remember I would struggle with that new, the new learning. I knew the other stuff, but I, and so, okay, that's a symptom. I mean, but I had no idea. None, none of this now I'm sharing. I have any clue to share with somebody. Um, I still had a splitting headache, um, but I was never asked those things or told those things either. So, you know, which is much different now, you know, that's why it's so important for the athlete to understand it so they can help the process and make sure you don't put them in a, a dangerous position. That being said, I take a hit very similar to what I had sustained on the Monday night game against the Buffalo Bills in Chicago, uh, in Chicago. And when they removed me from the field, um, it's actually when I was in the training room that I, I went into cardiac arrest. And as they were trying to resuscitate me, I actually started breathing and actually stood up and walked to the ambulance. Now, I don't remember any of that, but I was in intensive care for a couple of days. Um, when I came out of it, um, I did have to learn how to read again. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm grateful. My daughter was, I think Corey was two, maybe around three. Yeah, she's around two. And she, this is how, to, this is, I try to make, uh, I mean, it's funny now, but it was, it was really therapeutic for me then. She loved Barney. And I would sit there and watch Barney with her for hours. And I loved it too. And I, but it just tells you how cognitively slow I was. I was, I, it was, and I could read to her. I would read her her books and she was the one person that was patient enough to listen to me. And she actually, my daughter helped me more and she didn't even realize it. And she knows it now, but she didn't even know at the time. She helped me more with recovering than any one person. Cause they didn't have all of the treatments that exist today. You know, my son had um, not exactly the severity that happened to me, but two of them that were pretty close together and they put him through a cognitive and a physical plan and, and reestablish where he is, he had been, um, where he'd been traumatized from a brain perspective. And then they treated that area of the brain to repair itself from a cognitive plan and a physical plan. And I'm telling you in 10 days, Bo had clarity that I had never seen before. And actually the head trauma that he experienced was from slipping in a shower and hitting your head. So people who think that, um, and then later on he took one uh, on a football field, but it started by slipping, slipping in a shower. And when people, you know, talk about head trauma and parents go, I don't ever want my, you know, my kids to play sports because, or contact sports. Cause I don't want them to get a concussion. I'm like, wait a minute. In the environment that exists today, there's a, a lesser chance of that happening than in your own home. The leading tra leading cause of head trauma in the entire country is tripping and falling. And the population that builds that is usually young adults and old people. I mean, young kids and old and older people. So um, wouldn't it be better to be educated and informed on if it does happen, that you know what to do and care for your for your child um, to make sure they don't return back to the environment until they're ready. But that gets a little uh, that gets me ahead of myself. But back into my career when that ended, you know, my daughter helped me. I had to learn how to read it. They had me go to counseling for depression and um and actually, the words find a way again um, end up resonating with me where I remember I was laying on the couch one day. I'd been there for like two or three weeks. And I had no purpose. I, and I think everybody can identify with how you can spiral out of control um, just when your purpose gets taken away. You know, environments change and then, you know, you like start um, other things don't go your way. So it, nobody's immune to that. You know, that, that is the mental challenge that everybody has to is enduring through some capacity right now. Mm -hmm. But I have no I have no purpose. I've got the dream I've 
I've been doing for 22 years. I cannot do anymore. Um, and I got to start all over. And it's in the middle of the season, which is even more difficult because you got now got to watch the, your teammates and people do what you loved. And so it was an arduous time. But um, I saw those words again, and because um, I kept them, I always keep them around. And I just I remember going, okay, you have responsibility in this. You know, you did you ask somebody to hit you like you did? Did you ask to get cleared? No, I mean, however, if I want to waste my time on that. I'm going to stay in this miserable, sour mess I'm in or do something about it. And I decided then I go, there's two things I'm passionate about, broadcasting and coaching. And I had worked in broadcasting throughout my career. That's why I went to Chicago, actually. One of the reasons is they I was on the CBS today, the CBS um, pre and post uh, game show in Chicago. I had a, uh, a Monday night radio show at Walter Payton's restaurant for two hours. I mean, I had a whole host and I'd worked a lot of relationships as a player from that perspective. And um, I started casting out, you know, as many lines as I could. And whichever one I got a, a lead on, that's the direction I was going to go. And Mr. Rooney actually called me and asked me if I'd want to be a part of the Steeler broadcast booth. And he made me the first player part of the broadcast booth. And that sparked my, my, uh, my broadcasting career. And then ESPN called me right after that to help them launch ESPN two on college football. And that's the way I started my broadcasting career. And, and then in a way ESPN and that broadcasting helped me do all the things I told you about how my son went through this cognitive rehab plan. They don't stick you in a dark room. And anybody who does that now is behind it is in the, is in the dark ages. And that's not what you do with head trauma. You, you get properly evaluated and find out where, what area the brain has been traumatized. There's ways to go about re, repairing that and recovering from that injury with a cognitive plan and a cardiovascular plan. And because I had to learn different things mentally and it took me out of my comfort zone and out of my, uh, the zone I'd repeated so many times, that was probably the exact thing, the exact thing that I needed to help me recover and repair myself. So, um, it took a while to a good, oh my gosh, two or three years to really, completely recover from it but um uh it's now experiences i can use to help parents and people who have head trauma i don't care what your environment is to help you get the right treatment and resources to get your yourself recovered and, uh, and back to normal and i'll say this you know uh you hear so much nowadays where guys when they retire we had gary brackett on um, a couple episodes back uh, and he talked about, you know, when he got done playing and just trying to transition into the business world. But for you before, you know, there was the Internet and everything and Internet was really just getting going uh, for you to really put as many poles as you say, kind of out in the water and go that direction uh, and be able to transition really that work ethic that you, it sounds like you really put in every day on the practice field and in the game and take that work ethic to ESPN, uh, you know it's just kind of funny. You, you see somebody on TV and we've watched you for years and you've always had the fiery, uh, you know, personality, even as we, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this right now, even as we were, uh, trying to get the audio set up for this, we could hear your frustration. And I kind of looked at Kyle like, uh Oh, <laughs> I was like, uh Oh, but it's awesome to see that, you know, that's who you are. You, you were able to take that work ethic and transition it to, uh, to ESPN. Um, and, and really, you know, and, and sustain excellence, as we like to say. So we just continued to find a way, we, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Even though you're well, down. Yeah, that's what I love about like 
coaching youth sports because listen, you don't have to play go all the way to the National Football League to learn those skills and those tools, as you guys know. You do not have to do that. That don't get that misconstrued to thinking, oh, you got to go there to finally understand it. You, you can learn that in youth football. You can use that in, in youth sports. And there's so many times that kids need um a sport that will build their confidence and give them hope, give them some structure that they may not be getting at home um, that allows them, you know, to, to build on their, on their life and develop tools that'll help them transition to their life. I coached youth football since 1991. Um, My last time was 2014 when my son, you know, went finally went to high school, but that experience I have now, these kids, listen, I've got, kids I run into that have kids that are playing youth sports now and in high school that I coached back in 1991 and even a week of football camp with kids the things that you can how you can impact and really um, change and help a kid and give them a perspective or or some type of tool to help them with their not just that sport but but their life's work and this happens so many times uh, probably more fulfilling those type of stories and those experiences than when you do it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I've coached youth sports for I coached youth sports for quite a while in high school and, and college as well. And and I think that's the that's probably the one the biggest takeaway is to really the impact that you have on on young kids. And then as you said, to see them grow up and uh, to see what kind of you know young men and women they turn into. I think is is I mean something you just can't you can't replace. Um, so, and I know we wanted to, uh, to, to transition to, uh, so you start your career at ESPN, um, and then in, on February 14, 2003, you're faced with, um, more adversity in your life. Uh, you were diagnosed with stage two non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Well, I can tell you this, that, that was the most devastating day in my life. And then it saved my life. And, um, I don't usually get to the saving in the life part many times when I'm speaking or talking about it because, um, um, well, because people get so caught up in the actual diagnosis, which is it is the most overwhelming thing you can ever hear somebody say. Um, you can't even pretend to know what that's like. And the reason I know that, I remember uh, it was like a couple months before being diagnosed, ironically, that this had kind of happened. I'd heard about a guy that had been diagnosed with cancer and um, his story, I was listening to his story and I was like, man, if somebody told me that I had cancer, um, he started, I'd start envisioning how I might handle that. And I was like, and I, I, I finally stopped. I was like, that ain't never going to happen to me. I ain't got to worry about that. I, I seriously, I was like, that'll never happen. When you look at my family history, you look at how I do what, how I take care of myself. That ain't happening. Well, lo and behold, when it was, when it was told to me, I am telling you, it was the darkest days I've ever experienced. I two things overwhelm me: chemotherapy and dying. And I am telling you, not quite articulate enough to describe it other than that. But it overwhelmed me. It um, it was it was beyond scary. Um, and again, those words find a way um, end up transforming my mindset but it wasn't i didn't come up with it It was actually my daughter who i just shared you know when when i got told this is how the doctor he, he called me up 
And I'd been waiting for him because the biopsy, he says in about seven days or whatever it was. And so when I knew he was calling me, I knew this is a moment of truth. It's either going to be benign because he said, if it's benign, he goes, you don't need me. You need Dr. Yates. But if it's cancer, you're going to need me. So I answered the phone and I didn't even say anything. I just picked it up and he said, it's malignant. He said, you have a three pound tumor in your lower back. He goes, it's about the size and shape of a football. The irony of that, Merrill. He said, anywhere between 14 and 17 days after your first treatment, he said, you're going to probably lose, start losing your hair. So you might want to shave your head. He said, you're going to go through brutal chemotherapy. He knew I'd been active and playing in this basketball league. And I like working out and training. He's like, you're no longer going to feel like doing that. You're going to be a sick and tired man. And he said, and lastly, I can't guarantee what we're going to do is going to work. Well, when I hung up, man, I was like, I've never heard. I can't guarantee it's going to work. I just can't even tell you how empty a feeling that is and hopeless that is. So I started thinking, you know, listen, I'd love my kids without end. Um, find a way has been a parenting tool. I've always challenged my kids to find a way they come in with a problem or they get, you know, they got some issue. I'm like, well, then find a way to get it done. You know, Bo or Corey, let well, what can you do differently? What do you, you got to find a way to change that. And, but now help them with the process. But instead of throwing the burden on me, this is your problem. This is your goal. So think of ways that you can go about getting them. Now I'm going to help you with experience wisdom. I have them to fill in there, but this, this is about you. So I, I've always used that on them. Well, after I told my kids, because what I started getting concerned about, my mom died when I was young and that was as tragic a thing as I'd ever experienced. And it really kind of ruined our home. I mean, it ruined our family. It, uh, it sent everybody down their own ways. Everybody started just kind of surviving on their own from that moment on. Um, and I just didn't want, I mean, I didn't want that my kids to experience that. And I started worrying about that, but I thought they should know about what's going to take place. They're not going to be used to me laying on a couch, sick and bald. So I thought I'd share that with them. And right after I'd done that, I did that. I just really started, I was consumed with chemotherapy and dying. I'm telling you, it was just overwhelming. My daughter, um, who is, I'd already told you about her at age two. So it tells you she had a gift and there's something about her still to this day. I'm grateful for her. And she came over and got my lap. And I mean, she, I remember shaking my neck with her arms and she's like, well, then you dad, you better find a way. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my gosh, you are spot on. I'm, I was like, Oh my God, it changed. I was like, I kept telling you, I could feel like it happened in this moment. Like it changed my whole energy. I chemo, I mean, dying was not an option, you know, being sick and tired and being feeling sorry for myself on the couch, not an option. Like, I'm not going to let those things consume me anymore. I'm not going to think about them anymore. Not going bald was still going to be an option. But everything that, I mean, it just changed. I was like, okay, how do I, who do I reach out? Who can help me? I, I find five people that have been through what I've been through. They're just removed to five years removed. I talked to all of them because I found them through my doctors and nurses. And a lot of things actually inspired. Well, after I talked to them, actually, I was more depressed than before because they confirmed things that nobody told me about, like all these burn holes that eventually happened to me where they just, he said, you wake up and you got these burn holes in you, in your back and in places you just never thought because chemotherapy will sit there and burn through you. And, and that happened to me. Um, but when I was talking to them, what struck me 
was they made it. And man, that inspired me. I was like, that moved me. That gave me hope. And even though all of them said it was brutal and all of them, you know, crossed, I mean, crawled across the finish line, nothing had, none of them had been really active in their life because I'd asked them, that was my other question. And that ends up being what I use as my, my weapon against it. I'm like, I've been investing in my health my entire life. I'm going to cash in on this investment. I am not going to lay around. I was playing in a basketball league. I continue to do that because I ended up calling my doctor. I said, now, listen, you said I wasn't going to feel like it. You didn't say I couldn't, right? And he's like, oh, yeah, you can do it if you want, but you're not going to feel like it. And I'm like, well, I remember thinking, I know you've administered chemotherapy, but you've never taken it. So I'm changed. I'm not doing that. I'm going to play. And I actually had a basketball game, the first my first treatment. I went and played in that game just like I would normally do. Any other day, I got up and got my kids ready. I got up and worked out before I got my kids ready for their day, just like I would normally do. So in my first 24 hours, what happened is I I turned some two gallons of water based on sweating and running around and stuff. And here's what they don't tell you. Chemotherapy works in seconds, but it doesn't leave your body in seconds. So what they rely on is for you to hydrate the best you can and cleanse your body. And if you you can cleanse your body quick enough, then you can come back sooner. They give you like a 21-day window. I remember they said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to run you over with a Mack truck. If you survive, in 21 days, we're going to do it again. So they gave me a 21-day window. And what I could do or what ended up happening is because I would cleanse my body so quick that I could go back every 14 days. And I know a lot of people will go, oh, geez, why would you ever want to go back at the week early, you know, when they tell you how to do a week, you know, yeah, why would you go back in two weeks when they they said you have three weeks? Well, chemo. Uh, if I get three weeks off, so does cancer. So the quicker I'll go back, disadvantage tumor, advantage me. Right, and that's the advantage that um, that helped create with that. Now, modern medicine, the people that exist in those environments, I love them and I respect every one of them, even if I don't know them. Just to work in there, and I'm grateful for people like that because. Um, somebody like me is dead if they, if they don't exist. So I, I, I appreciate and love all of them. Um, but it also really helps me try to invest and tell people how to invest in your health. Like we're all responsible for how we care for ourselves. And it is the one thing that you can't go get when you need it, if you haven't invested in it. And it could be the difference in you making it or not making it. Cause I remember going through the testing that I went through like two days, two weeks of testing. And it was finally there. They were testing my heart. And I asked them, I was like, what am I, what is this test for? I'm like, I just, I mean, the tumors in my lower back around my side, she goes, Oh, she was, if you're not healthy enough, your heart's not healthy enough. You can't even endure the treatment. I said, what? She goes, Oh yeah. Some people aren't even healthy enough to do it. I was like, Oh, now this all I was thinking is like, let's say I had just thrown in the towel and said, I've been working out my whole life playing football. I'm done. You know, it's 10 years later and now I'm not in great shape. And now I haven't invested. Well, you can't run down to target and pick it up. It's over. And I was like, Oh my gosh. So that has always, I mean, not that I needed that in my life. I've always been passionate about that. And, it's the one thing we're all responsible for and we owe it to ourselves. Um, rather it's 
if something comes your way, but people love you too. They want you to stay around. They want you to be, if you got kids, I mean, you owe it to them, you know, to, to be there for them in, in the healthiest manner you can possibly be in. Um, but on my last cat, cat scan after my treatment, some five years later, they actually identified that I had a lar- enlarged aorta. Now it could be a, a birth defect or it can be triggered by how you train. Now, if you asked me, put bullet, put a gun to my head and say, which one is it? And I had to be right. I would have put it on. It's probably how I trained. There's so many times I just did things in excess and over did it. And just out of just ignorance, just didn't know any better. Didn't know how to manage that. So I probably created it myself, but I was asking the doctor, I go, how, how would they find this? If, and not everybody's doing pet cats, by the way. You know, that's just, I wouldn't be doing a pet cat if I wasn't having cancer. Most people aren't doing pet cats unless something's really wrong. He's like, they probably find it on the autopsy. I said, what? Mm-hmm. He's like, nope, you would never have known this. So I'm going to tell you this. If I don't have cancer, I'm not doing this podcast right now. And that's a promise. And they took me in. I had I had already exceeded what they consider emergency surgery, emergency surgery by the time I had it um taken care of so cancer in a way saved my life without that i i did never known about it and i'd have probably ruptured it at some point training or doing stuff i do on a on a daily basis that's that's for me watching you growing up um you know coming through like i said nfl countdown or any of the any of the espn nfl shows that you were on you know i never knew because at that time i just never you know, I know it was public and there was a lot of coverage from now when I look back, but I never knew you went through all this to understand that as now I'm an older man with two kids and, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, wow, like this is just, you know, the adversity you've overcome, which is our motto of the underdog. To say the least, you're the epitome of overcoming adversity and, and getting back to having success. So that's uh, really refreshing to hear, you know, all the, the different things. And then you obviously went, uh, in 2015 and, and actually had the heart surgery, correct? Yeah, we monitored it for years. Um, and it actually got to the, when I had it, when, when I had, yes, when I had, I had to do a stress test just to check up on it. And the day they looked at it, they, they wanted to send me in, they wanted to admit me to the emergency room that day. And I was like, time out. Cause that was August. I was like, my son's first, first game at BYU, I'm going to be there and his home game i'm gonna be there so we can do that after and uh i i thought i didn't think much of it then but man it was stressful from august till october 5th before i did it because i felt like every time i they told me not to go hunting right and i was like well i'm like what is gonna be okay what what is what 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 is it gonna hurt to be up in a tree stand at this time year? i never see the biggest buck on the planet what do you think happened to me it's all the biggest buck on the planet. I'm telling you, and my heart started <laughs> racing like, and now I'm sitting thinking I'm going to die on the tree stand, right? <laughs> I was so shook. I missed the dang thing. I mean, I was like, oh, gosh, so bad. Because I'm more worried about my heart rupturing right when I'm pulling my bow back than I'm worried about <laughs> making the right shot. I'm losing my mind. Going, oh, my gosh, I'm going to die right here yeah. by shooting this. <laughs> I shot right over the buck. I never saw him again. Either, you know? like, the buck is probably I thinking like – He's, but yeah. my heart was just ticking like crap. I'm like, oh my gosh, is this going to end it? <laughs> it's just like, I was a train wreck, man. Oh, that's great. Well, hey, we want to get to, we do a rapid fire uh, little section here at the end and uh, wanted to uh, 
throw a couple questions here. Uh, Calvin, why don't you kick it off? So there's this thing, and I don't know how big it's been to you, but I would imagine it's been brought to your attention. Um, but some people think that your ties, you were so you you were you were very 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 extravagant and big ties. Uh, you know, whenever you're on television, and there was a quote where someone said, "I think the ties get bigger throughout the broadcast." What's uh what's what's the history with you and your ties? <laughs> well, um, lots of people I, when they they ask about that, I always like listen. I got my ties are on steroids. They, uh, <laughs> RHGG, they're just their training ties. They got um uh I told some real dead go. I had had to check my tie, it was too big before I got on there. I play along with people. There's no <laughs> sense of fighting it. But how it really came about was I was a kid and um I had won the the this this award for the best running back in the state of Idaho. And I was I cowboyed too for a long time. I actually quit football one year to cowboy. And then realized I'm going to play football because I cowboy any other time. But this neighbor of mine made this belt buckle for me. And it said it was number one state, number one running back in the state. I don't, it was this awesome belt buckle. And I was wearing it to church. And I, but when I passed the sacrament, you have to have your tie on. And I put my tie on and I looked down. I'm like, wait a minute, nobody can see my belt buckle. I'm like, this ain't right. I'm like, hey, that's why I'm wearing the belt buckle so people can see the belt buckle. So I move, I, I move, I made my tie, I moved everything and balanced it out right so it would, it would fall just below my, just above my belt buckle, and that just made my my knot uh, bigger. And then from that moment on, that's how I always did it. I just, I've always tied my tie like that. Um, it's just gotten a little bigger with some of the fabric I use or the ties I grab. Hey, you don't have to explain it. It looks good. Don't worry. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think you look all right. <laughs> um, what is it? Question number two here. What What is it like living in Bengals territory being a former Steeler? Well, actually, it's not as difficult as you might think. Um, most people probably don't even know this. I was actually a Bengal before I was a Steeler. Um, I played for the Idaho State Bengals. Marvin Lewis was my linebacker coach. I was going to ask about Marvin, that. I've known Marvin since I was okay. in high school. Um, half his staff I have played with or no Eric Ball, who's still there, is a dear friend of mine. He's a hunting buddy of mine. Um, Jonathan Hayes, I mean, everybody that was there. I mean, a lot of people that are still on that staff I know from my career in the NFL and, and, and the ESPN. So, and what I find is, man, there's Steeler fans everywhere. That is That is the one thing that, is universally true about them. I mean, they are everywhere and they're all over the place. But here's what I learned too about being at ESPN. I, I love all NFL teams because think if we just had one team, how boring that is. And there's value in you know, when the Cleveland Browns left, right? I tell people the second saddest fan in all of football was the Steelers fan because they had nobody to hate. I'm like, there was devastated when they left. Like, Who's gonna hate? <laughs> So I know it doesn't bother me at all. I love, I mean, this, they, 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 they give, we give, they take, we take. I mean, that's what makes it fun. You know, I got a buddy who's always got bangle stuff on when I take him golfing and he's, and he, I think when we go golfing or we hang out, he wears more bangle stuff than he ever wears anywhere else. Which <laughs> is fine with me. And I'll tell you, the, going off of what Merrill's saying about the Browns Bengals, not to go on a grave tangent because this Here is we my, go. one of my things, but <laughs> they, you know, growing up a Browns fan living in Pittsburgh, 
when the Browns did leave, um, and, and the Pittsburgh fans, to Merrill's credit, they, they were sending in at that time as faxes, and they were bombarding the league and huge support from from Pittsburgh for Cleveland. Um, one, I probably they beat beat us all the time. I'm sure that was like, hey, we need an automatic two wins. But two is good, you know, good rivalry and and just a good football town. It's just a great place. I tell people all the time. I live in Cincinnati. I'm a Cleveland fan, but Pittsburgh was the best place to live. So, um, more credit to that that, that community. But um, one thing I had go off of ESPN. Like I said, I I love uh, a lot of people look at broadcast. I, I look at broadcasters kind of like most people look at singers or um, athletes. I love broadcasters. So I loved your work at ESPN. The one guy I did love who you worked with was Chris Berman. I don't know him as a person, but, um, Boomer, I always, you know, my buddy's actually from Pittsburgh. Billy White would always do the welcome to the Oakland out of County Coliseum. We're the Oakland Raiders. We always try. It's terrible personation, but between that and circle the wagons, like the Buffalo bills, like we would always do that. So I would love to hear one Boomer story that you can share um, that, uh, maybe the average listener wouldn't know. Well, I'll tell you this boom and I go way back. Um, and I love boom. Boom's not kind of like a brother to me. He, um, we become Idaho brothers. Now this is, this is, this happened in the, in the salt in the Utah salt Lake city airport. Um, I'm leaving my cabin and I'm flying out of West Yellowstone and you always had to connect into, um, into salt Lake. And then you flew. Salt Lake to here, Cincinnati. And I'm walking through one day and I hear Myrtle because he called me Myrtle. Myrtle. And I'm like, I don't know. One person on the planet calls me that. <laughs> and I look over and I'm like, boom. He's like, and he goes, what are you doing? I go, no, what are you doing here? I'm from here. I know why I'm here. What are you here for? He goes, my brother lives in Ketchum. He goes, I'm always in Ketchum. I'm like, in the summertime? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> so anyway, we become Idaho brothers from that, that moment on. And uh, there is nobody, um, listen, ESPN, I mean, he's the icon there. He is funny. I mean, genuine. Uh, I mean, he is um, in the war room. I mean, he is, he's a treat. He's a dear friend. He's such a good guy. Um, in fact, I was just texting him yesterday. He's in Hawaii right now. Um, that's where he has a home in Hawaii. He says he's stuck there. <laughs> He is exactly, exactly like you see him on TV. You know, if you if you ever get to meet him, you'll know what I'm saying. He's exactly like that. We might have to get him um, on the UDP from all the way if he's bored out there. We might have to get him, get him on the yeah, podcast. He is, <laughs> he is. He if you could, that would be a, a treat for your audience because he is a he got stories and he's got he's got a lot of history with with ESPN, obviously, and from the ground up. Um, but he is. He's one of the great people. I tell you, I, uh, you know, I didn't think of him like, you know, I know how you're thinking of him. And I, you know, when I was playing, I probably thought of him like, you know, the same way, you know, you always want to say your name or do, do something that he does. And he is, um, but now he's a friend and I'm telling you, he's just, he is just, he's just, you know, when his wife was, was killed, it was just, uh, yeah. you know, the guy's been through a lot too, you know, it doesn't, does nobody's immune to it. And, um, he is a he is one heck of a human being. So he's doing okay now. Yeah, he's he's doing great. I um, just like I said, I reached out to him just last week, and he was he's doing great. And he looked better last time I saw him too. Um, I saw him at Jim Kelly's tournament, and he looked better than you know 
then I'd sign like about six months after his wife passed and he'd look better from that, which is, is always nice to see because that is losing somebody like that's never easy. So my next question uh, kind of talks a little bit about your personality uh, on air. Uh, so you get, you, you know, obviously being a broadcaster, you get paid to be right or wrong on television and you have no problem biting your tongue, which I think is awesome. So a lot of times, you know, when it's coming around this time of year, you know, drafts or whatnot, you know, you've had to call guys out, you know, whether it's, you know, you, you said Tim Tebow or Johnny Manziel, you know, those guys were going to quote unquote be bust or weren't going to make it. Uh, how difficult is that for you or, you know, where does that personality trait from, come for, from for you? And how did you, did ESPN kind of figure out and say, you know, this is who you are and this is kind of what you do well. So we want you to be open and speak your mind or is it, kind of take well, us kind of through that little evolution. Well, um, ESPN had nothing to do with it because um, um, here's, here's Stuart Scott taught me a lot about um, and Jerry, a guy named Jerry Madelon, which you may not know his name, but he was my first producer at ESPN. And Stuart Scott and I are really good friends. And um, we always talked about in television, you have to be bold and dynamic. And um, I used to put that down on my paper every time I got ready to go, to go on air, no matter what show I was doing, bold and dynamic. But what I realized is it's tough to be bold and dynamic. Well, for me, I can't be bold and dynamic if I don't know what I'm talking about. Meaning if I, I can't make up things. Right. I can't go. Some people, listen, majority, 99.9% of them are like this. That is making it up. And when I say making it up, if you don't watch tape, on a player or a team, you have no clue what you're talking about then. At this time of year, I always use the line, TV lies and highlights really lie. Because you cannot watch a TV uh, a game or a highlight reel and think that you know that that player can transition to the National Football League. His skill set is good enough. In fact, I'm sitting here looking at the running back from Georgia. Um, before I got on here um, and I'm looking at all these running backs coming out because I got all the tape on them and the tape tells you a story. The tape tells you what kind of skill set he is. And because I've had almost 40 years experience of playing and studying the league, I know what it's like to play in the NFL versus college. First of all, the field is different. Okay. The hash marks are different. That makes the game different in college. The game's played on the perimeter and the NFL it's played in the middle. So a skill set has to come to that. I don't care what your position is. So you mentioned Tim Tebow and Johnny Manziel, those two guys indirectly. Okay, Tim Tebow's skill set was one of the worst and most atrocious I've ever seen in the history of quarterbacks. Okay, but this is what happens in the draft. People who don't pay attention to those things and think, oh, I can, he's a good guy okay? or he's an exciting guy. Those are not, those are not a skill set. Okay, exciting and good is not a skill set. If that were the case, you would draft a lot differently. If you look at the skill set and you understand what the transition will be, then really my job's not that hard. And now it's easy to be bold and dynamic because I know what I've seen. I know what the odds are of that transitioning to this league. Um, now the difference in, in my world is that, you know, once you go out there and you do it on a national setting, you know, um, people hold you accountable to that. Um, and listen, my whole goal was to always look like, okay, I'm going to draft this guy. I'm building a team. Is this a guy who can help me? 
And that's how I looked at every single player. Can he or and can he transition to the league and be the player they say? When I say they, it's usually when you hear you just you just go watch all the draft draft experts four months ago versus now. Everybody's changing their draft. Why are they changing their draft board? Because they're starting to talk to people who really know what they're talking about, and they're telling them you lost your mind. Like you know, I mean, this comparison from Burrow to Tua, that is like watching a pro to a high school kid. Burrow is 10 times the quarterback any of those other guys are in any other category in any other day, in any other way you want to talk about it. How do you feel about Baker, uh, Merrill? Not to interrupt. You know, I actually actually like Baker coming out. Um, That being said, um, you know, the way – now, listen, here is another element that I have no control over that does matter, coaching and system. Mm-hmm. And if you look at how Baker has played now, I think where you're going to ultimately know about Baker is this year. I think this year's a, um, the next couple of years are telling for him in the sense of if you still see this spiraling decline, then it, there's there's something there that I didn't see in Oklahoma. And it really has nothing to do with coaching. I don't believe that to be true. I think it's been more about coaching. Then Baker's skill set, because I remember watching coming out of Oklahoma, I have a checklist, you know, and I go from decision making and accuracy, it really becomes a focal point, you know, and then we start to, if you can't, if you're not really, really sharp in those two categories, I'm going to tell you this, you're, uh, the chances of you having, having a chance to su- succeed in the NFL are, are slim to none. If you cannot be in a high, on a high marking in those two areas, you know, arm strength, just because you got a big arm is irrelevant. If you don't know where, ask Jamar. Let's look at Jamarcus Russell's history. Maybe greatest arm in the history of high school, college football coming out. It got to throw it from Louisiana to Florida, <laughs> right. but you never knew where that ball was going. And neither <laughs> did you. So, and that's a problem now. Right. So, what I'm getting at with Baker is like, um, I'll use, um, um, um no. Gosh, dang it. Kansas City's quarterback. I calculate oh, Mahomes. Patrick. Patrick. Patrick Mahomes. Jeez. Okay. When Patrick Mahomes come, we're in a draft meeting, and I was like, and this, I'm not saying this because uh, it this you just have to trust me. I was like, and it wasn't, I didn't know this was going to happen, but it was just a scenario. I'm like, when you look at Patrick Mahomes' skill set, it is grotesquely unique. And his arm strength is ridiculous. He's a he's a runaway. Uh, like wild stallion right now. I go, but if he got somebody like Andy Reid, I just in the meeting, I was like, okay, because I'll just use an example, like how important coaching is. If he got somebody like that, let's say he goes to Cleveland and has the coaching there. I'm just using that scenario. If you put him there, uh, I don't think Cleveland Browns win a Super Bowl. You know, I don't think Priest home. I mean, uh, that he um, Patrick Mahomes has play plays the way he's played to this day with in the structure that they have there. So like coaching is so important and the system you come into and can they, can they build around that strength? And I don't know that Cleveland did that for, for Baker. So mm-hmm. I, I have not, um, uh, he did some things, you know, in the last couple of years that I did not see in Oklahoma to be honest with you from a decision-making aspect. And I don't know that they, they really played to his strengths either. To be honest with you, and I think uh, I think this staff has a shot to do that. So I am I'm not a sour on him like a lot of people are. I just um, that's good. I appreciate. There's more good there than a lot more good there than bad. There isn't like those glaring red flags. You know, like a Johnny Manziel. Okay, that 
when Johnny Manziel came out, when you play reckless and you play <laughs> with no structure right. and you win a Heisman Trophy from that and that's all you've ever done, do you know what the odds of you changing that are? Slim to none. Mm -hmm. That ain't happening. And if he didn't even understand some of the conceptual one-on-ones of playing quarterback, and now you got to teach that to this kid? And he already has an attitude, I'm smarter than everybody else anyway. i like, you're not changing that. You're not changing that. And there's nothing there. And he wasn't that accurate of a player, of a, of a, of a thrower either. You know, is he a playmaker and exciting? Everybody said, well, he's exciting. Well, that's not a skill set. Right. I mean, it's not a skill set. So I, I'm not as, as down as uh, – yeah, well, I appreciate. It. I get my Browns uh, fix here, so I had to. As a selfish question, Calvin, sorry about that, but I appreciate your intake because that's that's good to know. Because I think there's a lot of people trying to figure out that situation, definitely up in Cleveland. But uh, with that said, I know we went a lot longer than expected for you, Merrill. We really appreciate all of your time. How can folks? Um, you know, I know you have a couple books out there. Uh, find a way two times, right? Brainwashed. Uh, your website. Uh, can you go over anything? How they can follow you as well. Well, yeah, it's actually it's actually pretty simple. It's just it's MerrillHodge.com, um, and it's M-E-R-R-I-L-H-O-G-E.com. And that takes you to really everything that um, that we have out there. The My Find A Way book's being republished. I added some chapters, so I republished that. A whole new journey there. I didn't know you could republish a book. And I was told by that by a, a professor at an event I spoke at because I didn't have my open heart surgery in there. And she's like, well, did you ever republish it? You ever thought about republishing it? And I'm like, uh, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't care about this. I'm not shy. Sometimes you're dumb in some areas. I didn't know. I that's a knowledge clue. nugget I just learned. Yeah. So that's cool. Yeah. I was like, well, okay. Well, it's like, well, let me work on that. So I got a hold of my publishing um, that I did brainwashed with. And um, he's like, oh, yeah, you can do that. And I'm like, well, let's do it. So um, I brainwashed came out a little over a year ago. And that book, I'm, I'm, I would I encourage, you know, any parent that has kids involved in sports, shoot, just really are active to read it because it really it really clears up what the facts are about the science of CT head trauma. But it's a great it gives you great insight on all of the treatments and the way you can care for injury, head injuries that are impactful and powerful to to parents. Cause like I said, there's a chance there's a better chance of your your son or daughter tripping and falling down the stairs on a floor in a shower than they are in, you know, in the backyard messing around, playing around, then they are going to, it's then, then in sports. And so why not know how to care for them and, and treat them if it does happen? Yeah, no, that's great. <clears throat> we appreciate once again, you, you're one of those guys. I actually called my dad before I said, Hey, I'm talking to Merrill Hodge today. I told him I called my mom and everyone in between and, and uh, just was super, super excited Really appreciate your time. Um, like I said, once this this madness is over here, um, with the events going on with the coronavirus, we'd love to get you out to uh, out to eat sometime. So, really appreciate absolutely. everything. Absolutely, love to, brother. Yeah, appreciate it. it. Good talking to you guys. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thank you and good luck and uh, and and stay safe. And you know, we'll definitely we'll definitely stay in touch. Thanks for listening to the Underdog Podcast. Please subscribe and rate our podcast on the Apple and Google Podcast apps and send our Twitter handle a screenshot of your rating at Underdog Pod with your shirt size for a chance to win a free t-shirt. See you next week on the UDP.